Hi, I'm Glenn. And I'm Jim, and welcome to the Backstage Show. This week on the Backstage Show, we're going to be discussing something that... Jim does every episode, sort of. <laughs> Sound design. Uh, sort of in a way. Yeah. yeah. This is a little bit of a different environment, but related skill set. Yeah, it's definitely certainly. your bailiwick more than mine. I mean, I've, I've certainly done sound design for a few shows, mostly my own shows, but I think you have a lot more experience with it than I do. Well, I have you to thank for that, as a matter of fact. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you kind of helped me to get my start establishing mm-hmm. myself as doing sound design in community theater. Was that with uh, Dracula? No, that was Picasso. Picasso, that's right. Picasso with the La Parangile. Oui, oui. Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, I knew you had the skill set from your experience as a musician. Yeah, doing some some self-recording. I mean, that was more on the side of sound editing and Mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. I had done a little bit, too. I may have mentioned this before. I don't remember. But I had done a little bit before with running sound effects during live performance as part of Mm -hmm. a summer theater workshop I was involved in as a teenager and then I actually ran a soundboard with uh, Mike Pax mm-hmm. in high school my senior year so that was really only my actual theatrically related sound experience prior to Picasso right yeah I briefly did some stuff with sound in high school I think I did that for like a couple like one production or something and then I switched over to lights mm-hmm. when I was in high school but I mean I any of those skills are long lost for me I relearned the sound design, but I have not relearned anything about lights. Yeah, in some places they have one person doing both sound and lights, operating at least. Yeah. I've kind of managed to avoid those scenarios because in other cases they do have dedicated people. Mm -hmm. And it kind of seems like it works a little bit better that way most of the time because frequently there are sound cues and lighting cues happening together. Yeah, that can get complicated. I, I've had shows where I've directed where they kind of overlap a bit, and it, it can be challenging for yeah, sure. Yeah, especially if it's things uh, associated with scene changes, for instance, which it very often can be. Mm-hmm. Yep. It just it's, it's usually the, is the, the scene changes that, that tend to have that. Mostly, like, you'll have to have the lights up, and then there's, like, a phone ringing right away or something right. like that. Or if there's, you know, scene change music or something right, like that, that then they tend to go, go together mm-hmm. more in sync. It depends on the setup as far as how easy it is to trigger the cues on the light board and uh, with the sound equipment. Right. It could, to make it easier for one person to handle everything. It can be done, but sure. in my experience, I just haven't done that. I've stuck to just the sound side of it. Yeah. I think Barley Sheaf tends to combine it with one operator most of the time just because the booth is so small. Well, there is that. Yeah, yeah. I think Forge might have the same situation and... Yeah, Forge booth is pretty small as well. So just for practicality. Yeah, depending on the stage setup there, though, I know they've done like lighting in the booth and sound like hidden behind a wall in the audience somewhere. I kind mm-hmm. of, I've seen that been done. Uh, the The barn has a has a good setup with a nice large booth, and uh, it looked like uh, Village Players also has a large enough booth for two people. Yeah, that that easily can accommodate two people there, mm-hmm. but it hasn't been unusual for. It's been pretty common, I think, with most of the recent productions that one mm-hmm. person handles everything it often comes down to practicality yeah and the, the setup the equipment setup right how easy is it to operate and i've kind of encountered the gamut as far as the types of equipment that i've worked with right so should we dive down a little bit here sure i mean there i would say there are probably two major areas to focus on when talking about sound design on stage and backstage 
Uh, I wasn't really thinking of it that way. <laughs> I was thinking more in terms of the, I'll refer to it as the live sound reinforcement ele- element, where you're basically operating as kind of like a sound man would for a live music performance. Okay. And that just depends on, you know, whether, usually depends on whether the production involves the use of microphones of some type. Right. Well, it's kind of hard to reinforce live sound without <laughs> microphones. So. Right, right. And, and then there's the the pre-recorded element of it where you are compiling sound cues mm-hmm. that are called out. Music, effects, that kind of thing. Right, right. Yeah. And it's basically just a matter of playing the cue at the appropriate time in the performance. And determining where that cue comes from as well. Insofar as? Insofar as... Uh, depending on your sound setup, you might have, uh, you know, a, a stage right, a sound yeah. coming from stage right, yeah. a sound kind of, you know, that kind of thing. That Interestingly enough, I've played with that a little bit, but, mm-hmm. and occasionally I've used that to some effect, especially if it is trying to emulate sound coming from a certain source. Right. I find though, and most uh, community theaters are small enough that you can get away with it. But yeah. if you had a larger venue, I think it's harder to pull that off because you maybe have a larger space where the audience is sitting and a more contained space where, um, where the action's taking place. Where the action's right. taking place, and it's kind of like if you go to a concert, it's not going to be in stereo. Mm-hmm. It's all going to be manual. So sometimes you end up taking that approach even in a live theater setup. Interesting. But a smaller, yeah. a smaller uh, house, more intimate kind of a venue does lend itself a little bit better towards. Right. I'll call it spatial placement okay of different sounds so i have played with that at times Mm -hmm. so as far as how to start to put together a sound plot frequently is as the case is uh with more recent scripts the script itself will call out sound cues right usually it's uh practical things you know a phone ringing or Mm -hmm. a doorbell or, or things of that nature sometimes even a knocking on a door if there's no actual door there you never know Potentially, yeah. I mean, you do have to kind of draw the line between what things are going to be achieved practically. Right. Meaning it's still a sound effect, but somebody actually is generating it yeah. through a practical Yeah, means. I mean, like door knocks is a good example because most of the time, even if there is no door there, they'll probably just knock on a nearby wall or something like that. They can do it's it easier than having way. to do yeah, a sound sure. effect. So frequently the script will call out things that are integral to the plot. Right. But sometimes the director's vision involves things that maybe not may not be explicitly called out in the script but they're related to the the kind of atmosphere that the director is trying to set Mm -hmm. and as we've discussed before there's also circumstances where they might call something out in the script that the director decides not to use and isn't necessary for their production potentially i mean that may change as a function of if the uh if the show is you know moved to a different time period or Mm -hmm. just a different environment right um that might be necessary or, you know, the director is trying to establish the atmosphere. Maybe they want to have, you know, if it's supposed to be, you know, I'm thinking of like Dracula, for instance, a scene where I think Jonathan Harker is standing outside or supposed to be standing outside and you hear like wind going through the trees, whistling Mm -hmm. through the trees, that kind of thing. It's in that case, that was an example of you were working with a, fairly minimal set for that right. part it was basically just him in a spotlight mm-hmm. so we this. really didn't have that much to set his surroundings up with other than sound yeah and i think there was like the the, the scene in the castle where he's just in a spotlight and there's like scraping sounds and things like that and i think you added that into yeah we had uh, digging sounds and yeah. things like that did your own foley for that <laughs> right i'll get into that <laughs> i'll get into that a little bit yeah 
So sound can be effective, particularly for minimalist sets or black mm-hmm. box kind of shows. Sound can be very crucial to help establish where the scene is occurring. Right. If you don't have, you know, visuals to go along with that. Yeah. And that can kind of go, even if you do have a set established, there might be something like if you've got an indoor set and you're trying to establish things going on outside, like rain or, yes. or that, uh, you know, we had like in True West, yeah. there were there's a sound of crickets and right. coyotes that was, in the well, background. That, well, that was called out in the script. That was called specifically. out, Specifically, yeah. that was... But I mean, it's still an example of where you're inside and you have an established location, but you want to establish the setting further. Yep. Yeah. And the, the, the time of day, for instance, that's, you know, that, mm-hmm. those scenes are happening at night when the crickets would be loud. Yep. So it burns during daytime scene, that sort of thing. Yep. Yeah, so those are all great examples of what sound can do for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some cases, if you have a prop, you know, the prop itself may not make a convincing enough noise on its own to depict what it's trying to represent. So I've had to come up with cues associated with mm-hmm. a prop as far as augmenting its effect. Example? Well, a recent example was uh, when I worked on a production of Honeymoon in Vegas. Okay. Uh, and this is actually something I didn't think of when the show opened. I thought of it midway through the run. Mm-hmm. One of the characters, he's a like a Vegas lounge singer, and he's got a prop mic. The mic wasn't hooked up to anything. It was just he had a wireless mic pack on so you could okay. hear him. But the mic he was holding was just a prop mic. And then there was one point where he stops in the middle of a song and he starts tapping the mic. Okay. And it occurred to me, well... Should make a sound. It should make a sound. (laughs) (laughs) So I just hooked up another mic to the board that Mm -hmm. I had in the booth. And then when he did that, I was miming along with him as he was uh, doing it to get the the sound of hitting the microphone to augment his prop. Mm -hmm. And I, until I think my last, the last performance of it, I was, didn't quite get the timing done. And then (laughs) the last performance, I nailed it exactly. So that's one example. Or, uh, you know, maybe there's a case of somebody using a gun on stage or something like that. And if it's just a prop gun, mm-hmm. then if you want it to have a more convincing sound. Right, rather than using a uh, starter pistol or something. Right, then you, you're augmenting it. Right. So that's another example. So part of the preparation of developing the sound plot, in my experience, has been to have to go hunting for cues because I didn't... I, you, I've built up a library of cues mm-hmm. I've used in previous shows, but usually I encounter something new in every production. Yeah, I mean, it, I'm sure that list just keeps growing with what uh, you never know what you're going to need, and you have to find something sure, to yeah. use for that, whether it's something that's already existed that somebody else recorded, or if you need to, again, like do fully and create it yourself. And I've done that too. I've, I have, in some cases, when it's possible, uh, when it's practical or makes sense to do it, I will, mm-hmm. I'll do my own recording of a sound effect. Right. Sometimes it's a matter of the sound effect you're recording is very specific to the show because it's people saying lines for, yep, from yep. the show. I've had that. I've had that in a case where somebody had a tape recorder that was supposedly running, and then they discover this tape recorder, or another actor rather discovers the tape recorder and goes back and plays something. So we had to have that. Well, we didn't have to, but well, we had to have some sort of sound, and we actually recorded it. Did we record it on the tape recorder? No, we actually recorded it separately. And they would press it on the tape recorder, and then the sound effect would start as if it had been recorded. But it wasn't actually playing from the. It was tape not that because was this stage. this was a, I think an old micro cassette recorder that I had, and I didn't have a micro cassette, or for, there was some reason we didn't do that. I guess we were too concerned about the prop malfunctioning. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah, for reasons or it might not have been loud enough. Yeah, uh, I think it's probably safe for you to handle it because that way the, the right. booth operator has control over it. You're not relying mm-hmm. on. 
Yeah, as long the as the prop. booth operator can see them pressing that play button, they know when to start the queue. Yeah, and that's, as you're operating the show, that's the critical element of watching the action on stage yes. and trying to sync up with those actions when it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. As far as voice recording goes, we did a lot of that with Dracula because we played a lot with the effects of voices that were yeah, that intended would come to sound like areas. they're coming from throughout the house and yep. things like that. I remember that. Uh, a more recent experience, uh, and this is a show I was in, but I was also helping out a little bit with some of the sound design for it, was um, No Sex, Please, We're British, where there's an intercom at the front door of the apartment where the play okay. is set. So we recorded all of the lines that the, all of the characters said going and through the, the intercom. intercom. Mm-hmm. And then I, this is another area where I usually take it from is, you know, the, the sound of the raw file I'm working with for a sound and pretty much everything is digital nowadays, but right. the file I'm working with, I will usually have to do some level of editing. Sometimes that's as simple as just futzing around with volume mm-hmm. or uh, adding effects, adding effects like echo that was certainly done with Dracula. And if I remember, yeah, the, the yeah. challenging part with that is, uh, I believe the character was speaking along with those lines, and then like the the recorded audio f- would fade out, and she would take it over live. That's right. Yeah, yeah. it was a person, right, speaking, an actor speaking along with mm-hmm. the, the pre-recorded yeah. version of the same dialogue. That's true. So that was kind of an eerie effect. Yes, so then for the intercom, I had to kind of futz with it to make it sound like it was coming through an intercom. More, more intercom right. <laughs> right, right. So playing some games with equalization and things like that mm-hmm. and levels. Uh, so that yeah. usually goes with the territory. Yeah, I mean, and, and sometimes you just have to edit these things together. I mean, one show that I did sound design for, there was a tornado effect that they wanted. Uh, and this was actually something that was done like all you know, they, they were talking about this tornado coming and all the characters were off stage and it was nothing but sound and lights, nothing else on stage. So I had to create a tornado effect. I mean, there's not a lot of audio recordings of tornado effects. So I had to <laughs> combine like various wind yeah. sounds and thunder sounds and things like that and then boost others and have them down. I think I had like in all, I think there were 20 different sounds making up a, a single tornado sound. Yeah, uh, I've. Multi-track mixing, I mm-hmm. guess I will call it. Kind of, it's basically a, a composite sound that, as you described, kind yeah. of combines a bunch of different elements going together. Like Dracula right. with Dracula's thunderstorms was like that, where there'd be just kind of background wind, yeah. plus, wind, rain, you know, thunder, bouts of thunder interspersed throughout yeah. it. So I've done that, where I'll take all the individual sound cues and mix them together. Mm-hmm. That, that's a pretty common thing. As far as places to find these sounds, you know, going online, recording them. Oh, I got to tell. That's right. I got to tell the story about the Foley thing. So yes, in Dracula, we at one point have the sound of people who are supposed to be digging, uh, digging graves. Digging graves in Dracula's basement. I right, which is just verbally described. We don't actually see it happening on stage. Mm-hmm. And, and I it's, believe it's, it's, it's Harker talking about the digging, the digging. Right. There's a bunch of events he's talking about reacting to, and you just hear them mm-hmm. kind of in, almost in rapid succession. So for that one, I recorded it myself, but instead of... You know, instead of digging, digging graves. dirt, I was <laughs> digging cat litter. Oh, it was very effective. It worked really well. <laughs> I think I think uh, some people figured out where the sound came from. Did they? Re- I I remember listening to it. And I it, it I certainly couldn't place it. It sounded uh, it sounded good to me. Well, that's good. I'm yeah. I'm glad it worked. <laughs> you know, I mean, foley artists they would come up with pretty ingenious ways. Yeah, you got to get creative sometimes. Uh, make sounds like that. Yeah, but if you're not creating them yourself you can often find them online yeah that's where i've mostly gone to there are some 
uh, sites like Sound Rangers, for instance, I've gone to a lot where you do have to pay for the the sound cues, but mm-hmm. they're royalty free. Okay. Meaning, when you buy them once and then you, and then do, you do whatever you want with them without impunity. Right. Ad infinitum. Mm-hmm. I've seen there are some that that do that without charging. Yeah, or, there are some that are free. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes there are more collectives of just stuff that people have uploaded into a collection. Right. And then there's also occasionally the, there'll be some that you can download and use as you want, but you have to give credit for them, like in the program. Yeah, you see that a lot on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I guess that comes up. Yeah. So, so it's a lot of a lot of places where community theaters can get it. I mean, professional theaters are more likely to do something where you might require a royalty and might have to pay per, per performance for that, but community theater is less likely to go that route. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can, we can harken back to the legality issues we talked about before. Yeah, yeah. But some, as I think we talked about in that episode, sometimes you can get a prepackaged sound effects CD for certain shows that yes. are available through the publisher's website. Yes, and sometimes you're required to do that. I mean, we, we had talked about that with uh, Accomplice, where we were required to use right. their, their effects, their music. That's not very common in my no, experience that no. you'll get a prepackaged set of sound effects for a particular show. Right. I mean, there are also just generic sound effect CDs that are available. I mean, it's just Yeah, that was CDs something. 101 sound effects yeah, on it, 99 tracks. Yes. So track 99 would just have three effects mm-hmm. on it in series. It was yeah. just kind of bizarre that they did that. And I never knew. I mean, it's not the kind of thing you're getting much anymore. I mean, I'm sure you can like go on Amazon and still buy stuff like that, but I don't I really have no idea if those were royalty free or not. They they really didn't like it's not like the liner notes would cover that. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. I, I but I mean, what would you? I guess I'm not clear if you were to buy something like that. What would? What else would you use it for? If yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I just sit back. And it was listen, a little bit before my time that that was more commonly used, so I don't really remember a lot of the details. I'm old. I'm old. Like I remember cassettes. <laughs> so I do too. Yeah. My first time running sound cues for a show was mm-hmm. on a cassette tape, and that had its own unique set of challenges. I don't yeah. remember if I talked about this before, but the fact that it's all on the same tape and you have mm-hmm. to time your playing and stopping right you didn't you can't just jump track to track queue up a track like mm-hmm. on a, a cd or a digital file yeah like so. now when, when i put stuff on cd i used to put like a 30 second pause after like 30 seconds of silence after each cue so that if you couldn't stop it right away that wouldn't affect things but you couldn't do that on a cassette because then when you started it back up you'd have 30 seconds of silence yeah you had to really pay close attention to the tape counter in that yes. case and don't even get me started on 8-tracks. <laughs> so in addition to the sound the sound effects, you've also got uh, potential music. In the, and this, this is not, we're not talking about musicals here. There are right. some non-musicals music, that use music. Music certainly can be used for effect. Uh, we've uh, we've talked about that in previous episodes associated with the legality of using music, yes. copyrighted music. If you, and I've done this for you. Right. Whoops. I've done this for you, where we've gone the route of composing original music, which right. obviously we are free to use however mm-hmm. we see fit. Yeah, that was for True West. That was for True West, yep. Is that all up on your website? It's actually up on YouTube. Yeah. Do you want to point them in that direction? Uh, I'm trying to remember what you would search for. Uh, go on YouTube. P312, is that what it's under? Well, that's my handle on well, YouTube. That's what, yeah, but you can look it up for that and you can find your page. Uh, JP312 Music, I think, is the full okay. handle. Well, check it out for that. And... Uh, yeah, so that was a case where we had uh, original music mm-hmm. for scene changes and basically composed a soundtrack for the show. Right, and yeah. I know that that is something that's kind of appealed to your sensibilities as a director yeah. as far as having kind of that 
I do cinematic like element that. to your productions, particularly uh, Dracula and Frankenstein, and and you did the sound design for me on both of those, and those were kind of called out as more cinematic, and both of those had background music uh, playing during scenes, whereas True West we we only used it between scenes. Right, right. And frequently there's music that is played before the show starts and during intermission. Yes. And there's, as a sound designer, there's thought that goes into, okay, what would be appropriate thematically? Right. You kind of want to set a mood, set a, a, a time period, like uh, Boeing, Boeing, we used all 60s music because it all took place during the 60s. Right. So we kind of wanted to set that mood. Yeah. And uh, music that will be used in show are kind of more connected to the performance versus the pre-show intermission music, I've, I've gone by different rules mm-hmm. as far as the aesthetics of that. Yeah. I know some directors get very picky and, and they won't, they don't want their sound design picking pre-show music. I've encountered that a couple of times. Really? Yeah. I, generally I will, you know, ask the director if they have any particular opinion about mm-hmm. uh, what they would want to use and they might give me some ideas, some, some sort of direct general direction, but right. then leave it up to me as far as what specific material to use. Right. So then uh, you've got the music, you've got the sound effects, and then we're, we're back to talking about live sound reinforcement and reinforcing your actors. Yeah, and my experience has been that, that the use of the live sound reinforcement varies considerably from uh, venue, to, from theater to theater. Yeah, I, I mean, it has a lot to do with the size of the theater, whether or not you need it. True. I think Barn Playhouse, for example, I think has used, as, as far as I recall, has used some sort of sound live sound reinforcement in mm-hmm. every show, whether it's... a they do a lot of musicals, so it's really critical for that. Yeah, because it's hard to be heard over the orchestra if exactly. you're not mic'd. So they have 15 or 16 uh, wireless mics mm-hmm. that the uh, principals uh, will be wearing. Right. Um, so and they know, have uh, they have overhead hanging mics. They as well. do have overheads as well yeah. to kind of just pick up general stage noise or mm-hmm. pick up people who aren't wearing the wireless mics. I remember actually. Didn't we block something in Dracula specifically to have somebody closer to one of those mics? We may have. Yeah, because I think we did have them on for that, and then it wasn't getting picked up well enough. And this was there was a scene in Dracula where there was like six different elements going on at once. Might have been four. I, there were a lot of different elements, and it was hard to pick out the individual voices. So I think I, I might have changed the blocking on that to get them closer. to And I'm trying friends. to remember if I had to play around with the faders or not. Very possibly did. Yeah, for certain lines mm-hmm. in, in that. Uh in that scene it's a little scenes. tricky I, th- I think with the overhead mics it's a little trickier because you're it's a little more spotty yeah and, right well there are rules associated with when you hang them you read the instructions associated with the mic mm-hmm. as far as the, the proper spacing to use right They're, they should normally be what we would refer to in biz as an omnidirectional mic meaning that they have a broader uh pickup area okay. pickup sound from all directions as opposed to a what, As opposed to a unidirectional, frequent, most frequently uh, a cardioid-style microphone, right. which is what we are using right now. Right, and we have the microphones right in front of our faces, so it picks right. us up. And it's more meant to pick up noise more from one direction. Right. Uh, so if I start talking and I go around to here, you can't hear me quite as well as if I'm talking directly in. Well, that's the best place to be. Yes. Yeah. It will definitely color your tone. And there's your microphone lesson for the day. <laughs> So, yeah, so you... you if you, you have, have more you... questions about microphones or other <laughs> sound equipment, you can email us yes, at, at podcast at backstage.link. Or even if you just want to say hi. Yeah, we get, you know, we need positive reinforcement. Yeah. We'd like to hear from you. So but that's, anyway. uh, that's overhead mics, the, the, the individual wireless mics, and how else can we mic the uh, 
There are floor, floor mics so okay. I've seen used. They aren't uh, as common, mm-hmm. I guess. They're and they tend to pick up uh, floor noise, I guess, stage yeah, noise. footsteps yeah. in particular. That's probably why they're not heavily as used right. as other Did we have styles. those in, in Picasso? I want to say that that... I want to say we did. Yeah. But, but I don't know that I've encountered them anywhere else. No, I don't mm-hmm. think I have in the last 10 years or so mm-hmm. ever run into floor mics anywhere because of all the stepping noise that they pick up. Yeah. They're not really the best choice. Right, right. So when you have you know wireless mics, you have to fiddle with each channel. Each mic has its own channel. You're mm-hmm. trying to fiddle with equalization to get that particular to actor to sound good through the mic so it doesn't sound overly electronic or boomy or tinny. And kind of probably make sure that they're all around the same volume. Well, yeah. I mean, sometimes I have, especially with musicals, I've had to ride the faders a little bit mm-hmm. because when they're singing, it can get really loud, especially belting out certain notes. Right. But when they're speaking at other times, they could be softer, mm-hmm. so... Even with the two of us talking, I mean, there's a certain amount of balance just involved with this, I would imagine. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I have very little. I'm not actively life, running so. uh, knobs or faders when <laughs> no, no. I record this. I may fiddle with things later. Yeah. Uh, in the mixing stages, but yeah. So between running all the faders plus operating the sound cues for yeah. a musical, that's where I've tended to be busiest. I would imagine so. And I mean, you have. With the musicals, you have to balance out sometimes with the orchestras as well. I mean, yeah. like within the orchestra, I mean, because aren't some instruments... Have you ever worked where instruments have needed to be mic'd, I guess? Occasionally, like mm-hmm. very few situations. Yeah. Usually, my experience has been relying more on the acoustic, the actual acoustic sound of the mm-hmm. pit. Okay. Uh, but there might be, you know, a particularly soft instrument that can't really be easily heard. Or, or maybe right. a recent example was um, for It Should Have Been You. Okay. Um, at the barn where the cast was used to, you know, rehearsing all the choreography and performing the choreography mainly to a piano. So they were concerned about the cast being able to pick out the piano and the overall mm-hmm. tone. So I believe we, we mic'd it. Okay. Now what if you're production. dealing with, with an orchestra with, with certain things like a, uh, uh, electronic keyboard or yeah, electric that, guitar does that tend to go through the board or are they amping that separately a keyboard might electric guitar hasn't been in my experience because they have their own little amplifier to go with it right so you can just hear it that way a keyboard may have an amp their own amplifier too or it mm. might just be run directly into the board okay that has kind of been more it's happened a little bit more frequently in more recent productions i've worked on but generally been the exception rather than the rule and then from there, once you've got all everything mic'd, everything going through the board, you got to get it out of the board and into the speakers. Yes. Some, that's got to vary from by venue, yeah, too. Yeah, some so. speaker systems aren't terribly sophisticated, meaning, you know, it's basically just flat stereo sound. So mm-hmm. you're just mainly mixing for the benefit of the audience to be able to hear everything reasonably right. well. Uh, also, the actors to be able to hear themselves over... The orchestra. Right. That's another consideration because they have to be able to hear it too. There may be monitor speakers backstage, which is what they're relying on primarily. Mm-hmm. But that's that can be tricky because of feedback. Yeah, being careful. I about mean, feedback. it's just just the the speaker systems in theaters are are it varies so much location to location, and you don't know what you're going to encounter. I remember, at least it used to be this way with Forge. I don't know what they're doing now, but I, they had a stereo system there. But because it's a black box theater, you weren't always right and left. Sometimes you were front and back. Right. Or side to side, you know, like diagonally. Yeah, depending on where you're sitting. Because it's so, they've done shows in the round there. So that can certainly be a challenge. 
I probably in that situation would have just made it a mono mix. Yeah, I, I don't think that's generally what they've done. Mm-hmm. I Dra- want to say the last show I did there only had a single speaker working. So. Yeah. Dracula was pretty sophisticated in that we had different banks of speakers mm-hmm. that did different things or had different jobs. Yeah, well, we had some on stage, right? Didn't we place some on there? Well, there was the normal house speakers. Mm-hmm. Then there was the ones we mounted to the walls, the side walls, that the right. wall helped amplify the sound. We talked about that before. Mm-hmm. And then there were the backstage monitor speakers, and those were primarily used to uh, drive in-house, or sorry, in-show effects, right. something that's supposed to sound like it was coming from within the scene. Right. The ones on the walls were for the more atmospheric special effects, as I'll call mm-hmm. it, the, the special vocal effects. And then the the house speakers were basically for the music. Okay. At least that's how we use them. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I know at Barley Sheaf, we had things set up. Uh, you and I did some installing on that system. And, and at least the way it was designed was uh, uh, there's four speakers in the house. Yeah, four speakers in the house that was just left-right stereo. Then there's two speakers on stage that can be controlled separately left-right. And then there's a, a roving channel that's set up in the center where you can just put the speaker anywhere you want. Now, technically, when we had this set up, it was designed to be five-channel sound so that you could individually fire any one of those speakers. But I don't think it actually has been working that way. Yeah, I think the barn, which is where we did Dracula, mm-hmm. uh, I think that was a different board, different yeah. sound board then that compared to what they have now. And okay. I think when they got the new board... Pretty much everything came out of two outputs. It was just stereo, yeah. and that was it. I think that's a little more common because that tends to be the more inexpensive boards that, that theaters are, are more likely to get. Yeah. I mean, we did stuff. I think the only reason it was supposed to be the five separate channels was the receiver that we had hooked up, and I don't know that the board could handle that, mm. and I think that turned to be it turned out to be the issue, that once you run it through the board, you're down to the two-channel stereo. Right, right. But having those options can give you a lot more flexibility yeah i mean it certainly can if you can if you can pinpoint all these separate areas it can help things where if you're trying to determine location for a particular sound but as you said it you know particularly with larger venues it doesn't necessarily pay to do that so as far as running the sound you know everything's into the boards yeah yeah, everything uh has to go through a board ultimately because that's driving the uh the speakers Mm -hmm. or, or driving a power amplifier that's driving the speakers the uh the sources for pre-recorded pre-recorded material can mm-hmm. can vary i mean in, in in the time i've been involved i have dealt with a variety of sources i mentioned i worked early on with the cassette deck yeah. which that wasn't great i never worked with actual lp records <laughs> <laughs> i can't even imagine trying to do that uh well it would have been easier to jump from track to track if you could see the grooves yeah but even that's a little risky i think to, cert- to drop sure, a needle yeah. there <laughs> yeah no, do that I, in the middle of a show I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that would every, be every every sound cue would have the yeah <laughs> and the pops and hisses and the click yeah. you know, all that stuff um yeah but it's pretty much in in our time it's evolved from cassette it to has. CD, cd to computer yeah cd i have worked with a lot yeah skipping from track to track makes it very easy mm-hmm. having you know the fact that you could burn CDs, right? I think that was where it really took off. Is really took off was when you had the ability to burn your own CDs, yes. and that became pretty ubiquitous. Then that pretty much took over as one of the default methods. Definitely. And if you could mix the track with the extra silence at the end, that gave you the leeway to yeah, a little less hit the cue, do other stuff, and then come back to it later mm-hmm. before it skipped in the next track. So yep. it worked pretty well. I had a bit of a mishap when I tried to just go to the, the digital realm, mm-hmm. the, you know, avoiding the actual physical medium and just going to, say, an MP3 player, an iPod in this case. Yeah. That was during Dracula. And 
running it off, you know, the hard drive in the iPod kind of had its problems. Yeah. In that <laughs> uh, sometimes the hard drive had to wind up and it sometimes chose to do that in the middle of playing a track. So it would hesitate. <laughs> Never good. No. Yeah. So the, the example, the, the perfect example of that would be, say, when I was playing a wolf howl. This probably happened a couple times. I remember it distinctly one time. Playing the wolf howl, you'd, you'd start to hear it, and then it would pause, go silent in the middle for like a second or two, and then continue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So once we came to realize that, hey, this iPod is not the most reliable method, mm-hmm. I had to switch over to putting everything on a CDs. Yeah. And then I think I had two or three different CDs because I had mm-hmm. multiple effects going on at one time. Yeah, I think there was like mostly a music CD and an effects CD. I think is, is in how some cases yeah. there might have actually been three because there might have been one for music, one for background sound effects like and a one storm, for the main effect, yep. and one for the more obvious mm-hmm. isolated effects. Yeah, I mean it, it can get complicated. I I, I feel like the MP3 players uh, as a, a uh, source for sound effects never caught on that much. It seemed to jump pretty much from CDs to uh, you know a software program that's yes. designed for that. Yeah, so the Barn Playhouse is kind of where I first picked up on this. They were using a program called, I think at the time it was called Sound Cue Systems. Mm-hmm. The later versions of it changed the name to Show Cue Systems. Not uh, a sponsor. <laughs> but uh, I, I am a client now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, I started using it for Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And that was a godsend because we had so many different overlapping sound cues for that. Like all of the electrical machinery effects from his laboratory. Mm -hmm. It was great because that program could just overlap them all together. You could could program them to run on uh, hotkeys on the keyboard or Mm -hmm. play them in a sequence, whatever worked. You could automatically fade them out or trigger a fade out or however you wanted to handle it. Right. It was wonderful because it makes things a lot easier. It did because it gave you that much more flexibility. And I guess if you had hardware that could support multiple speaker outputs, then you could do even more with it. Yeah. I usually didn't have that element while working with it. I only had say stereo, but Mm -hmm. just the fact alone that I could play so many things, I pretty much stuck with that system ever since I got village players turned on to it. Finally convinced uh, them to buy a laptop, get this software and, I had similar that, thing with uh, uh, with Barley Sheaf as well. I think it's different software. I cannot remember. I think it's like Baxel Systems something. Yeah, I think I, I a there's a different. few of them out there yeah. at varying price points, but uh, definitely worth investment. And and the, the, you know we're kind of running short on time here, but the one thing I just do want to mention is you know community theater directors look to your sound design because I think that's an oft overlooked aspect that can really add a lot to your show with with very little effort. Um, you know, people think about lights and they think about all this other stuff, but sound often goes forgotten unless the, unless the effects are specifically called out in a script, they don't think about it. Yeah. Again, depending on the vision of how much, uh, how much you're depicting visually, Mm -hmm. you can really augment that or substitute even with, you know, a soundscape. Yeah. And it's just definitely just, just gives that more professional feel to your production. Just another aspect, another dimension Mm -hmm. that you can add to it. Yeah, at this point, I think I've been somewhat involved with sound design in some fashion for probably at least 25 different productions yeah. over the last, uh, I don't know, 12 or 13 years. And I've learned a lot. I've worked with a lot of different types of equipment. I've seen how it can enhance a show mm-hmm. in different ways. If you've got any further questions about it, if you want to 
give Jim an email and ask him a specific question and not have us cover it on the show. Even you can shoot us an email at uh, podcast at backstage.link and we'll get back to you. And if somebody does that, it might be an uh, uh, might be the question of, are you available to do sound for such and such show? Hey, you, you, you can't hurt to ask, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not guaranteeing I will be. Yeah, <laughs> Let me put it yeah. that way. Anyway, so uh, we'll be back at you next week. I think we're going to be talking about uh, set design next week. Uh, that sounds like the plan. All right. So until then, I'm Glenn. And I'm Jim. And you've been listening to The Backstage Show. Bye-bye. Okay, I'm ready. All right. <laughs> it's like your face is censored from here. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> Hello, I am... Oh, wait. (laughs) (laughs) No, that was last week. Sorry. Nimrod. Get all the chair squeaks out of the way first. Posture. I thought it was my turn. (laughs) (laughs) Just go with it. Okay.